Welcome to the Joe Watt Podcast. I am Joe Vendramini from the University of Florida Range Cattle Research and Education Center. And today our guest is Dr. Brent Sellers from the Research Center at ONA. Dr. Sellers, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Joe. I appreciate it. And Dr. Sellers, can you please tell us uh, a little bit about your, your background, professional and personal background information? Sure. So I think a lot of people already know, but I'm a transplant. So I grew up in Indiana, northern Indiana, about 40 miles south of Michigan, uh, on a feral to finish hog farm. And our family grew corn to feed the pigs. And I hated pigs all my life, still do. Uh, so anyway, I got away from the farm, went to Purdue, uh, graduated with a bachelor's degree in biology decided to continue my education and, and get a second degree in secondary ed. And that's where I fell into weed science. I started working for a USDA weed scientist in, in between my degrees. And then switched to master's degree at Purdue, finished there in 99, and then went to the University of Missouri for my PhD. And you know, when I was finishing up my, my doctorate, the very difficult to find a job in weed science in either academia or industry. So I think UF was the 13th job I applied for. It was the first interview I got. And it was the first job offer, so I took it. So I came down to Florida back in 2004. Uh, so I kind of just stuck around and, um, you know, got promoted through the tenure ranks and you know, this past year obviously applied and was able to get the center director position here at the center. And great. And, and Brent, now we'll switch to the weed science talk that I think that's what most of the listeners are interested about it. So during your like 16 years here in, in South Florida, but in Florida in general, right? Because you work pretty much statewide. What has been the most challenging weeds to control in, in pastures and hay fields that you found during your career? Yeah, I think there's four or five. I think, you know, smut grass probably tops the list now. Uh, you know, when I first started, tropical sun apple was probably on the top, but I would say it's probably fallen out of the top five because we can control it. And yeah, it comes back, but we can control it. Um, so smut grass would probably be my number one. After smut grass, I think it's kind of up in the air a little bit. Probably broom sedge is a close second. Uh, blackberry briars uh, would probably be a close second <clears throat> or, you know, third. And then there's you know, the tea weeds, or some people call them ironweed. But I think uh, an up-and-comer for me is the shrubby false buttonweed, or some people call it whitehead broom, and some people call it the southern laurel flower. So that one, it's uh, much more difficult to control than I ever thought it would be. In fact, I've thrown every herbicide at it that we have in Bahia grass, and it just kind of burns it off and doesn't really control it completely. Uh, but uh, we've done a little bit more, and I think we've, we're getting there in Bahia, for that plant, and, and then we get into Bermuda grass and limpo grass and star grass. I, I think we have one herbicide that will completely take it out now. So, bahay grass is the challenge. 
and and Brent, going back to the to the top of your list, probably the first one that is smut grass that I know you have been doing a lot of work with smut grass. Can you please give us an update on on probably the uh, a good options to try to control smut grass and and describe what you have been done with it? Sure. So, I mean, we only have one option for selective control. So that would be the hexazinone. So that's sold as Belpar or Tide hexazinone. And then there's another product sold by Helena Chemical that's called Velosa. And it's a little bit different than Belpar and Tide hexazinone. It's concentrated a little bit more. So the rate structure is a little bit different with Velosa. Uh, but anyway, those three products are what we can use in Bahia grass pastures. Most of the Bermuda grasses, we can also use those products, except we're finding that jigs uh, specifically might be a little bit more sensitive to it than Coastal and Tifton 85 and Tifton 44. And those are the ones that we've actually kind of looked at. Uh, we haven't looked at the new Miss Levy yet to see its tolerance. Um, <clears throat> And then we get into lymphograss and stargrass. I don't even like to recommend the hexazinone products in those because they're just too injurious. Um, I think with lymphograss, we get to a point of no return, right? We got to do something. So it's either renovate or we severely injure the lymphograss with the hexazinone. So that's an option that I think we have to weigh out cost versus benefit on that. Um, one of my most recent PhD students spent a lot of time looking at rainfall patterns and how that affects Velpar hexazinone activity. And what we found you know, was that we need about a quarter inch of rainfall um, to get you know, good activity, but if we get more than three inches of rainfall, typically the activity goes down. So we have that window of a quarter of an inch to around three inches of rainfall within the first week after application to get good control. Um, also, we tend to see the best control from mid-June through late August. So it's a pretty narrow window uh, throughout the growing season where, where we can actually apply it and get good control. I think the most recent stuff we're working on is looking at 32% uh, UAN as a carrier in place of water. So it actually ends up being at what we're, our output rate that we're doing is 30 gallons per acre. So it's about a half, 50% mixture, 32% UAN 30, and just water. And then obviously the, the hexazinone. And we're seeing a little bit more consistency um, the only problem is I have not had, you know, that seven inch rainfall yet, you know, right after application to see how that influences the control. Uh, so every time we've done this so far, we've had like the perfect amount of rainfall. And I'll say this though, the thing that really got me on this idea was a local grower um, have actually decided to put hexazinone out in April which is completely against you know, all of our recommendations. Um, and after he told me he did it, 
I was like, oh, it's probably not going to work. But he called me a couple weeks later. He's like, you need to go buy that pasture. But he, because he was actually knocking out the smut grass, some broom sedge species, and even Kogan grass was browning up quite significantly. Um, so that was very interesting to me. And I have not done an early spring application yet because I was going to do that this past spring. We know COVID happened. <clears throat> so hopefully next year we'll be able to do that. Um, so, but pretty intrigued by that because some of the results we had from this past year showed that a quart, which is a half rate, a quart of hexazinone with 32% UAN gave us equivalent control that two quarts of hexazinone mixed in water would give us. So that's pretty neat. If we can decrease our cost of the herbicide, we're going to offset that with the cost of the 32% UAN. But if we end up with the same amount of control, we're actually decreasing the amount of herbicide we're putting into the environment and hopefully boost, you know, what behavior grass might be there, growth. So, I mean, that's something we're continuing to look at and it's kind of exciting, you know, to, to watch and see what's happening. Another thing that we're trying is, you know, maybe we don't need that 50% mix of UAN and water. So we're looking at different rates of the 32% UAN as well. So we have started that this year. Uh, it's just too early to tell, you know, what's gonna happen. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that's kind of where we're at with it right now. So Jose, my former PhD student, he also looked at using weed wiper. Um, that's effective. I think what uh, what I've learned about using the weed wiper is that every person operates the weed wiper differently. So it's a matter of somebody really becoming familiar with how the weed wiper works. And a method that's kind of worked for me that's helped make me more consistent um, with the, the weed wiper that we're using, which is one of the roller wipers. And it just, we manually spray, you know, onto that roller with a button. So one thing that I've learned is if you hold the button down for two seconds and leave it off for eight seconds, once the roller is already good and wet, it keeps that roller wet enough and then you end up, you know, getting pretty good control. Uh, so we were looking at 50% glyphosate solution initially with some of Jose's work. Um, just messing around on my own and not really having it in a study. Um, we found, like, I can go down to 10% as long as I'm keeping that roller good and wet with the glyphosate. We also looked at hexazinone in the wiper as well. You get a little bit more selectivity with the hexazinone in the wiper, but it's just not labeled for that use. So we can't make that recommendation at this point. Uh, hopefully, uh, the companies will pick that up at some point and add that to their label. So that's kind of where we're at with smut grass right now. And Brent, you mentioned about the wiper and um, it has been my perception that uh, people uh, go after the, the wiper because it makes a lot of sense, you know, on the selectivity and the way that it works. And, you know, uh, besides having to wet the carpet to the op optimum point, 
there is not a lot of challenge there. But what I have noticed is they start working with the wiper and they phase out. You know, people, uh, they lose the excitement of the wiper. And I have seen a lot of the wipers, you know, sitting beside the barn and, and the person is trying something else. And do you have any thoughts about the, and they have yeah. the same thing or not? So. Yeah, I have seen the same thing. And yeah. like I said, I, I think every person operates the wiper differently. So I think what happens, Joe, is people go out and they, they get excited about it, just like you said, and they go out and they wipe, you know, 200 acres. And it looks good, you know, for a little while. And then the next year you see all these clumps coming back and it's very frustrating. So you, I think you get enough, you know, on some of the plant to kill the top growth, but you may, may not have gotten enough to actually kill the roots. So that's, that's why I think the technique I was describing, you know, about holding, once it's good and wet, holding that button down for two seconds and letting it go for eight, you know, just, I think that will help. But yeah, I think you're right. People get excited about it. They think it's working and they come back a year later and it doesn't look like it's done anything. And it gets frustrating. So they spent a lot of time on that wiper, right? So yeah, I think that's why it gets parked a lot of times. It does get frustrating. But we've used it and I think it's, some people are very successful with them. Others are not and I think it's just practice more than anything. And, and Brent, uh, just touch on, on the second one. We, we are running out of time. So we also talk about the broom sedge that it's, it, it has become quite popular. Would you have an update on the broom sedge as well? Yeah. Um, so we have no selective herbicides for that one. Uh, so if we're going to control it, you know, with the herbicide, we're, we have to use the weed wiper. There, there's no way around that. Or spot spray. I guess that's an option too. But some of the pastures I've seen, it would you'd spend years just spot spraying 10 acres. So um, another thing that we've been working on was a fertility study. And a lot of people think that, you know, if I just lime the pasture, the broom sedge species are going to go away. And, you know, I kind of thought that too, initially. And I quickly learned that that wasn't the case. There are some species that, or there's at least one, maybe two, that will respond to increasing soil pH. So that one will go away. But what happens is a different broom sedge species comes in. So that's actually what's happening in some of my plots here at the research center. So I got rid of one of the species, but I have a different species coming in. Uh, so and liming was part of it. We also looked at um, NPNK fertilization and with and without micronutrients. And we did see adding fertilizer did help decrease populations, but we did not get rid of them. And you know, one of the things I wondered once we're five, five or so years into that original project is which macronutrient, NP or K, might be influencing broom sedge populations. So we put out two new studies in 2017. And uh, <clears throat> one was here close to the station, one was over in Lake Placid at Buck Island. 
and really surprising to me, and I haven't really figured out why, but you know, potassium seems to have some role in decreasing populations. So that's kind of neat. Um, I think it opens up some new avenues as to why that might be occurring, because it doesn't make sense to me yet. I don't remember my um, crop nutrition, I guess, well enough from grad school. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of an update on the broom sedge. It's, you know, we're making headway, at least I think from the fertility side, but I just don't know why things are happening the way they're happen, happening right now. And, and these uh, fertility treatments, are they combined with uh, uh, some method of control of the broom sedge or is just the fertility treatment by itself? So it's just the fertility treatment, but I'll tell you what happened at one site. So I had a little bit of smut grass mm -hmm. at one site. So we sprayed Velpar over the entire experiment and I actually knocked out most of the broom sedge plants that were there. So that's the mm -hmm. first time I've ever seen that. Um, so I've been trying to pick up if there's a single species of broom sedge that might be pretty susceptible to exazinone or what's going on, but I haven't really been able to come up with that yet. So, you know, um, I'll say at both sides, you know, broom sedge species are, are there, you know, in every plot, just have fewer numbers in the plots that are receiving potassium. And, uh, Brent, we are going towards the end of our conversation here. So before we finish it, so what um, we we ask our guests, so what they, do they do during their uh, spare time or as a hobby, just as a curiosity? So other than uh, uh, killing weeds, what, what else do, <laughs> do you do if you have any spare time? I like to fish, so we go down to Placida quite a bit. I say quite a bit, not often enough. Mm -hmm. um, so we like to go down there and spend some time, a little Gasparilla Island as well. And uh, we have 90 acres, of, that's part of my wife's family. So we spend a lot of time working on that too. Great. So Brent, I would like to thank you for your participation in the podcast today. I am Joe Vendramini. Joe what? 